0: Here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. But, um,
1: by the way, I hope you liked my appearance on Hannity. Turns out it was in the last segment. But I, I hung him. And, uh, of course they did very, very, very well. I don't think they're used to a, uh, a guest really doing as well as I do, whatever segment they put me in. It's just, I get tired. You know, it's a full day and there I'm sitting and then it's 9.45. But anyway, any event, if we have time and we're in a, in the mood, we'll play some of that, but I'm certainly not going to start off with it. And I thought hard about what to start off with and I think I'm going to continue where I left off yesterday. Where was that, Mark? Good point. We've talked a lot, a lot, about the senior level of the FBI under Jim Comey, how corrupt it has been with the leaks, with the dossier. We've talked about how the Hillary Clinton campaign, that would be Hillary Clinton, the Democrat National Committee essentially paid for this FISA warrant, even though they used straw men to uh, launder uh, their funds through, uh, you know, we cut to the chase here. And how this dossier, uh, this absolute phony document that had the uh, assistance of the Kremlin uh, and a foreign ex-British spy was used in a significant way uh, to get a judge on the FISA court to approve a warrant. That is to approve surveillance of an American citizen that the FBI and the Justice Department accused of being a Russian agent. And they've yet to charge him with anything. That would be this fellow Carter Page. And they use that, of course, to open the door to leaks. They use that to try and diminish the President of the United States. They still do it. And so this has been a massive propaganda and misinformation campaign, disinformation campaign by the Democrats, by the senior level the FBI. And as I pointed out on Hannity last night on this radio program yesterday, really, it's Obama and his people. But I want to circle back a little bit. I want to circle back a little bit to Jim Comey and Robert Mueller. Who is Robert Mueller? You hear these accolades. They've built him up like they've built up Jim Comey. Does he deserve it? Robert Mueller, is he really a straight shooter? Is he really this objective G-man who's out to do good for the country? When he was appointed by Rod Rosenstein, which was really an outrageous appointment when you think about it, since Comey and Mueller are best friends, Carl Cannon, Carl Cannon, who is a uh, reporter for Real Clear Politics, he is, in fact, the executive editor of the Washington Bureau Chief of Real Clear Politics, he was one of very few media types who raised a flag. And way back in May, he said in the wake of Donald Trump's firing of FBI Director James Comey, the Justice Department named Robert S. Mueller III, that would be... Rosenstein who did it, as a special prosecutor to investigate possible Russian interference in the 2016 election. It was a decision greeted with a chorus of supportive croaking from inside official Washington, a.k.a. the swamp. Quote, if anyone can stay on course and not be deterred by the whims of politics, it's Bob Mueller, said former Missouri Senator and U.S. Attorney John Ashcroft. A great choice added John McCain, somebody we all trust, echoed California Congressman Darrell Issa. Impeccable credentials, chimed in Representative Jason Chavitz of Utah, should be widely accepted. Democrats are even more extravagant. California Senator Dianne Feinstein said that no better person could have been named. Illinois Senator Dick Durbin tweeted, I have the highest regard for his integrity and intelligence. All this was dutifully reported in the press which gushed over Mueller just as effusively. Quote, Robert Mueller, the special counsel America needs, intoned the New York Times editorial board. Times columnist Nicholas Kristof, revealing a lack of self-awareness worthy of Trump himself, he writes, gleefully predicted disaster for the president. Mueller is a Trump nightmare, a pro who ran the FBI for 12 years and is broadly respected in both parties in Washington for his competence and integrity, Kristoff wrote. If Trump thought he was removing a thorn by firing Comey, he now faces a grove of thistles. Kristoff never mentioned why he had much reason to recuse himself from his subject, as Attorney General Jeff Sessions did. I'll explain later. First, I'll say that when I heard Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein had appointed Bob Mueller as a special prosecutor, I didn't experience the same rhapsody as my capital compatriots. Why? Three reasons. First, Jim Comey and Bob Mueller have a long history as professional allies. For Mueller to bring bring brought in to investigate the behavior of the guy who sacked Comey seems a conflict of interest. Perhaps this is the wrong way to look at it, and Mueller's professionalism will supersede any personal loyalty. Okay, but here's a second reason. These two guys working in tandem have a track record of bureaucratic infighting with another Republican White House as their shared adversary that belies their reputations for being above political intrigue. This is not news. Some of the positive coverage in the last few days highlighted that episode. It's a long and good story, but the storyline that took hold in Washington went like this. Sorry, I'm coming down with a cold here, but we plow ahead. In March 2004, Comey, then Deputy Attorney General, sped with sirens blazing to the hospital bedside of his boss, John Ashcroft. We've talked about this, but a reminder is important. He was recovering from gallbladder surgery. At the time, the Justice Department was being pressured by White House Counsel Alberto Gonzalez and Chief of Staff Andrew Card to sign papers reauthorizing a secret anti-terrorism domestic surveillance program initiated after 9-11. The clock was running out and the papers had to be signed or the program would lapse. But Jim Comey, who had a dim view of the program's constitutionality, wouldn't do it. Now, he was the deputy attorney general at the time. When he heard Gonzalez, the attorney general, and card the chief of staff to the president... ...were on their way to the hospital, Comey rushed there, too, to stop them. Comey had enlisted Bob Mueller, then FBI director, as an ally. Both men apparently told President George W. Bush privately... They quit rather than extend the program. Here I stand. I can do no other, Comey told Bush. Yes, he. uh, what's he, uh, Florence Nightingale? What is this? That's Martin Luther's iconic line. And although in 2016 Hillary Clinton would come to see Comey as more akin to Judas than Luther, one thing is apparent. Jim Comey is a government appointee who thinks of himself in a manner many people find grandiose. Now, he wrote this back in May. Bush backed down in the face of the Comey-Muller insurrection, but three years later, Comey told his dramatic Ashcroft hospital bed story in a congressional hearing that eviscerated then-Attorney General Gonzalez, as I say, the Attorney General at the time. Gonzalez has always denied Comey's explanation of the story, you see. Always. Comey makes it like he and Mueller rushed to the rescue of the Constitution, got to Ashcroft before Gonzalez and Carr did, and stopped what would have been this this outrageous act by the, the White House. But they came to the rescue. The third and most important factor, tempering my enthusiasm for the new special prosecutor, Mueller, is that Comey and Mueller badly bungled the biggest case they ever handled. They botched the investigation of the 2001 anthrax letter attacks that took five lives and infected 17 other people, shut down the U.S. Capitol on Washington's mail system, solidified the Bush administration's antipathy for Iraq, and eventually, when the facts finally came out, made the FBI look feckless, incompetent, and easily manipulated by outside political pressure. Now this is the important part. This third example that he presents. It's Mueller and Comey. This, too, was an enormously complex case, but here are some facts. Despite the jihadist slogans accompanying the mailed anthrax, it had nothing to do with Saddam Hussein or any foreign element. The FBI ignored a 2002 tip from a scientific colleague of the actual anthrax killer who turned out to be a Fort Detrick scientist named Bruce Evans Ivins. The reason is that they had quickly obsessed on an innocent man, an innocent man named Stephen Hatfield. The bureau was bullied into focusing on the government scientist by Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy, whose office, along with that of Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle, was targeted by an anthrax lace letter. And the bureau was duped into focusing on Hatfield by two sources: a conspiracy-minded college professor with a political agenda who'd never met Hatfield. And by that columnist for the New York Times, Nicholas Kristof, who put her conspiracy theories in the paper mill mocking the FBI for not arresting Hatfield, would be his conspiracy theories. In truth, Hatfield was an implausible suspect from the outset. He was a virologist who never handled anthrax, which is a bacterium. Ivan's, by contrast, shared ownership of anthrax patents, was diagnosed as having paranoid personality disorder and had a habit of stalking and threatening people with anonymous letters, including the woman who provided the long-ignored tip to the FBI. So they're tipped off, this is the guy, but they say they have their guy, an innocent man. And this is Mueller, who was hands-on in this investigation, personally leading it. So what evidence did the FBI have against Hatfield? There was none. So the agency did a Hail Mary, importing two bloodhounds from California whose handlers claimed could sniff the scent of the killer on the anthrax tainted letters. These dogs were shown to Hatfield, who promptly petted them. When the dogs responded favorably, their handlers told the FBI that they'd alerted, quote-unquote, on Hatfield, and then he must be the killer. Now you'd think that any good FBI agent would have kicked these quacks in the fanny and found their dogs a good home. Or at least check news accounts of criminal cases in California where these same dogs have been used against defendants who've been convicted and later exonerated. As Pulitzer Prize-winning Los Angeles Times investigative reporter David Wilman detailed in his authoritative book on the case, a California judge who tossed out a murder conviction based on these sketchy canines, called the prosecution's dog handler as biased as any witness that this court has ever seen. And it was in the public record. And Mueller didn't even bother. And neither did Comey. Instead, Mueller, who micromanaged the anthrax case and fell in love with the dubious dog evidence, personally assured Attorney General Ashcroft and presumably President George W. Bush that in Stephen Hatfield, the Bureau had its man. Comey, the Deputy Attorney General in turn, was asked by a skeptical Deputy Secretary of Defense, Paul Wolfowitz, Wolfowitz, if Hatfield was another Richard Jewell. You remember the security guard wrongly accused of the Atlantic Olympics bombings. Comey replied that he was absolutely certain, quote-unquote, they weren't making a mistake. Such certitude seems to be Comey's default position in his professional life. Mueller didn't exactly distinguish himself with contrition either. In 2008, this guy, after Ivan's committed suicide, so the real perp committed suicide, as he was about to be apprehended for his crimes, and the Justice Department had formally exonerated Hatfield, the Justice Department, not the FBI notice, and paid him $5.82 million in a legal settlement. Mueller, the FBI director, could not be bothered to walk across the street to attend the press conference Announcing the case's resolution. When reporters asked him about it, Mueller was graceless. He said, I do not apologize for any aspect of the investigation, he said. Adding that it would be erroneous to say there were mistakes. This is Mueller. This is Mueller. He goes on uh, to write other things too. The biggest case involving a chemical attack, anthrax. In the United States, an attack on the Capitol, attack on Senators, five deaths. And Mueller and Comey were focused on an innocent man for five years. They virtually destroyed his life. And they've never apologized for it. He was the wrong man. They had no evidence whatsoever. They even ignored a tip. By a coworker of the killer. These are the men who are now colluding and conspiring to take down our president. I'll be right back.
0: Mark Levin.
1: Segment to go thoroughly into a gentleman by the name of Andrew Weissman. But I want to remind you who he is as well. You get a sense for who Mueller is. You know who Comey is. I mean, they tried to put an innocent man in prison. They ruined his life. All evidence to the contrary. No evidence at all in his case. They had their man, Comey said. Even when the Deputy Secretary of Defense said, we don't have a Richard Drill case here, he says, absolutely not. These are men whose egos are beyond description. And Mueller and Comey are best friends. And they've worked together before. They undermined Attorney General John Ashcroft. They undermined, excuse me, uh, Gonzalez. They undermined the Chief of Staff, the President George W. Bush card. They and they undermine that president, not allowing him to make the decision about whether or not he wanted to go forward with a, ironically, espionage program. And you saw how Comey conducted himself as FBI director, completely out of control. How do you explain Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, under Trump, appointing Mueller as special counsel, knowing full well? about the anthrax case knowing full well that Mueller and Comey are best friends it's appalling what Rosenstein did is absolutely appalling so this is Mueller who's the head special counsel and he picks as his number two this fellow Andrew Weissman and I want to remind you who this is because this is equally disgusting I'll be right back
0: The Vin Show is tomorrow's morning show. You can reach Mark now at 877-381-3811.
1: Rosenstein has 100% accountability for the appointment of Mueller because Rosenstein is close to Mueller, too. And Rosenstein was close to Comey, too. Now, I was talking to you about Andrew Weissman. He's the right-hand man, the number one prosecutor under Mueller. Mr. Anthrax grew up. What's he all about? Well, Sidney Powell, a former federal prosecutor, and he had dealings with these guys, with Mueller, with Weissman in the past and so forth. If you look at Weissman, you look at a photo of him, he's a nebbish. He's a he's a nerd. He's, but he say he's a tough guy now that he can abuse the law and abuse people. And he was the clown, you might recall, who went to the Hillary Clinton Victory Party. I guess he had to go there to find out she lost. And in addition to that, uh, he uh, was the one who called Sally Yates. You recall she was an Obama holdover before Sessions was confirmed as the acting attorney general who refused to defend the president's position on the refugee executive orders. Weissman sent her an email or a text congratulating her on her courage. So Mueller, of course, appoints him as his right-hand man. Now, what's his record? Well, we can't go through the entire record. But just like in the case of Mueller, he had his anthrax moment, too. And it is a big, big deal. Mr. Weissman, as Sidney Powell wrote, has been portrayed as having unimpeachable ethics is the prosecutor you would want if your family member was innocent. He was extolled for having a hunch that a former treasurer of Enron was willing to say more and would cooperate. But what do the cases and indisputable facts show? Let's start with Mr. Weissman's hunch that young Enron treasurer, Ben Gliason was ready to cooperate, quote-unquote. Mr. Gliason was about 30 years old when Enron CFO Andrew Fastow, then a cover boy for CFO magazine, conned Glyson into one of Fastow's fraudulently get-rich-quick schemes. So 30-year-old Glyson was an easy squeeze for prosecutors like Mr. Weissman, who honed for their own uses the tactics of organized crime bosses they'd convicted. Ben Glyson had made a fast million dollars, had a young family, and he was guilty. Weissman charged him quickly with an onerous 26 counts. Mr. Gleason pleaded guilty to a five-year count and just wanted to do his time. The problem was he refused to cooperate, quote-unquote, with Mr. Weissman. Federal authorities took Mr. Gleason to prison. He was placed straight into solitary confinement, a a hole-of-a-cell with a slit for light and barely enough room to stand. Men far tougher than 30-year-old Ben Glyson will tell you that 24 hours in solitary confinement can drive a man insane. Mr. Weissman and his Enron task force left Mr. Glyson in solitary confinement for almost two weeks. They broke Mr. Glyson. He had faced hardened criminals in the daily prison population, and that is how Mr. Weissman got that hunch. As for the prosecutor you would want if you were innocent, four former Merrill Lynch executives begged to differ. Mr. Weissman ran the grand jury interrogating many of the witnesses and at least one of the defendants. He then sat in the courtroom with his arm around Houston Chronicle reporter Mary Flood and oversaw every aspect of the prosecution. The prosecutors obtained convictions against Merrill Lynch employees, Bill Fuzz, and three superiors. Mr. Fuss, like Ben Gleison, was about 30 years old with a young family. He had steadfastly maintained his innocence and merely handled the paperwork for a transaction, which had been taken through all the steps within Merrill Lynch by Merrill's own in-house lawyer. Weissman's team vehemently argued against allowing the defendant's bail pending their appeals. Does this sound familiar to the Manafort case, by the way? They sent Bill Fuzz to a maximum security federal transfer facility with the worst federal prisoners imaginable, hundreds of miles from his little children. Eight months later, eight months later, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals completely exonerated Mr. Fuzz and ordered his release from prison within three weeks of the oral argument before the court even issued its decision. Before the oral argument, Mr. Fuzz will not speak of what he endured. Which means he endured a horrendous situation in that federal prison. The Fifth Circuit held that the conduct of the Merrill defendants was not criminal as charged. And the indictment was flawed. You see, Mr. Weissman had made up a crime. The Merrill executive suffered up to a year of wrongful imprisonment. They were all released. As for Mr. Weissman's ethics, the ethical rules to which prosecutors are supposed to be held require the prosecutor to disclose all the evidence that may be helpful to a defendant. Well, Mr. Weissman and his team did the opposite. They yellow-highlighted the statements of witnesses most helpful to the defense long before the trial. They threatened those witnesses with indictments, which kept them from talking with the defense. And they gave the defendants incomplete and affirmatively misleading summaries, quote-unquote, of what those witnesses would say. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals held the prosecutors, quote, plainly suppressed, unquote, evidence favorable to the defense. Enough for an ethics violation, but not for reversal of the only two convictions that survived the first appeal. Why, the evidence was still hidden. One of the nation's leading legal ethics experts, Bill Hodes, filed a substantial grievance with hundreds of pages of exhibits against Mr. Weissman, the New York Bar. Yes, and the author of this piece, Sidney Powell, former prosecutor, said he co-signed the complaint. At the time, Mr. Mueller had already brought Mr. Weissman under his wing at the FBI. So the Department of Justice was defending Mr. Weissman against the grievance for which he could have been disbarred. What happened to that grievance? In New York, the New York bar kept it for several months. Unexpectedly, we received a declination letter from the Office of Professional Responsibility for the Department of Justice. With no notice, the New York bar had slipped uh, excuse me, had shipped the grievance to the Department of Justice to decide a serious complaint that the Department of Justice was defending. The federal swamp is deep, dense, and deceiving. It is infested with a corrupt cabal that protects its own, and it can't be drained fast enough, wrote Sidney Powell. That's the number two prosecutor, Mr. Mueller's right-hand lieutenant. Weissman, Mueller, Comey. Pretty damn incredible, don't you think? They think they run the country. And they are all focused on taking out President Trump. They are all focused on destroying President Trump and his administration. They never wanted him in the White House. And they want to get him out of the White House. They know they will have the full support. Of the Democrats in Congress, and the full support of the media, to whom they leak relentlessly. Comey is an admitted serial leaker, even as FBI director. Mr. Weissman, no doubt in my mind, is a leaker. And Mr. Mueller, no doubt in my mind, is a leaker too. I have no fear that they'll sue me, you see because I know they've leaked at some point, at some time in the past. And we get regular leaks at a Mueller's investigation, don't we? Who they're focused on, why they're focused on them, what's coming up. That has to come out of his operation, or the FBI, or both. And agents are typically assigned, in this case, to the special prosecutor's office, special counsel's office. And this is, of course, why Donald Trump shouldn't speak to these people. Under no circumstances anyway, to any prosecutor, but in this case, no. These men and women have no intention of searching for the truth. They're on a search and destroy mission. And they know they have the backing of the Washington elite. They're part of the Washington elite. I thought it was very, very important to bring this up to you. And in this context, quickly, a reminder. As I say, I was on Hannity last night, and this in part is what I had to say. Cut one, Mr. Producer, go. Now we know why Shift and the rest of them are fighting so hard. Now we know why the left-wing Praetorian Guard, Democrat media are fighting so hard, trashing Nunes, me, you, and others. Let's walk through this quickly. Who are they trying to protect? Hillary Clinton. Sean, who else are they trying to protect? Barack Obama. His name never comes up, so let me help everybody with this. Loretta Lynch knew about these FISA warrants. Yates, the Deputy Attorney General. The extensions, Rob Rosenstein, now the Deputy Attorney General, he knew. FBI Director Comey, Deputy Director McCabe, Strock, the head of counterintelligence, Paige, his girlfriend. Who else would have known about these these uh, FISA applications and warrants. Well, let me tell you a little secret. These are counterintelligence efforts. You have to assume the National Security Council and the White House knew. Why would the FBI, the Justice Department, keep that from the National Security Director in the White House? Why would they keep it from the Deputy Director in the White House? So, why would it be left out of the President's daily (coughs) intelligence briefing, (coughs) which I mentioned in March, Congress also needs to get a hold of, I am telling you, when we're looking at the FBI, we're looking at the Department of Justice, and we're not looking at all, at all, at the White House. Hillary Clinton paid for a warrant. That's the easiest way we can put it. Hillary Clinton colluded with the, uh, with the Russians, but it appears the FBI, at the senior-most levels, colluded with the Russians, too. Whether it was winning or unwitting, it doesn't matter. That's a fact. So the senior level of the FBI tried to interfere with this election as well. This is why it's such a big deal. Now I know Republicans are bending over backwards saying this has nothing to do with Mueller. It has everything to do with Mueller. Because it transitioned from a counterintelligence investigation into a criminal investigation after Comey, of all things, confesses to being a leaker. And Mueller, Mueller is the former FBI director. Those are his people. That's his environment. He's not out there as some independent force. But I want to get back to Barack Obama. It's his FBI, his Department of Justice, his State Department, his candidate. I cannot believe for a minute that the National Security Council didn't know about this. And to show you how elaborate this is, now that more information is coming out, we haven't even gotten to the incidental collection of intelligence on people, including, by the way, Sessions, when he met with and spoke to the Russian ambassador, Michael Flynn, when he spoke to the Russian ambassador, the unmasking and leaking of his name, the record number of unmasking of American citizens in Trump world and so forth and so on and the american people have been subjected to a massive propaganda and misinformation campaign by the clinton campaign by the obama administration let me ask you a logical question sean why would the russians want donald trump to be president of the united states when they get everything they want from hillary clinton whether it's uranium whether it's undermining our defense by cutting up uh, military spending by refusing to secure our border why in the world would the russians want trump as opposed to Hillary Clinton. All right, we'll be right back. Much Now, not that you needed more evidence, but there is of how loathsome the progressives are, these Democrats are. These so-called prosecutors and agents are. Adam Schiff, if we had a properly functioning Congress, would be expelled from the House of Representatives. He is a leaker, and he is spending his every waking moment trying to figure out how to remove a duly elected president, and he is a serial liar to the American people. He is the ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee. And so Fox has been reporting all day that the reply, the 10-page reply to the three-and-a-half-page House Intelligence Committee uh, uh, memo is loaded with classified information. Now, I don't know if it's true, but apparently somebody who's read it said it is, quote, filled with information on sources and methods taken from original documents. Mr. Schiff would have done well as a KGB agent in the old Soviet Union. Mr. Schiff would do well today as a right-hand apparatchik to Vladimir Putin despite all of his professed distrust and dislike for Russia. His tactics are right on. Uh, That is, if you are a representative of a tyranny. Mr. Schiff has a totalitarian mindset. He's not interested in truth or ethics or morality or the law. Much like Mr. Mueller, Mr. Weissman, and Mr. Comey, quite frankly. So that's the game they're playing now. Apparently, according to Fox News, and they're citing somebody who read the Democrats' rebuttal, and quote said it's filled with information on sources and methods taken from original documents. And so then, if the White House and the administration says we have to redact certain parts of it. They know full well that CNN, MSNBC, NBC, ABC, CBS, and all the rest Will carry water for them, even though they know. The Praetorian Guard know exactly what Schiff has done. They don't care. They know Hillary Clinton's campaign and the DNC were involved in the dossier and colluded with the Russians. They don't care. And they know that Mr. Muller is not a paragon of virtue any more than Comey and Weissman are. They don't care. Because they're not either. You know, the ability to provide for yourself and your family, that's a simple, old-fashioned value this country was founded upon. Self-reliance ensures both personal liberty and safety. When you're prepared, you don't have to rely on the government when there's a natural disaster, a financial crisis. Just think about these hurricanes that took place in the summer. Look at Puerto Rico and Houston and so forth. Absolute, real, natural disasters. And in many cases, the government's the last thing you'd want to depend on in an emergency you got to protect yourselves and take care of yourselves. So you need a plan. Where do you start? Make sure you've invested in some food storage and trust My Patriot Supply. They've helped me prepare, and they'll help you too. Make sure each person in your household has their four-week emergency food kit. They're only $99 and shipped for free. And you can order right now, today, 800-294-2325, 800-294-2325. Or you can go online and order. Go to preparewithmark.com, preparewithmark.com. Emergency food from my Patriot Supply lasts up to 25 years. That's a long time. Kits include 102 servings of breakfasts, lunches, and dinners. Only $99. 800-294-2325 or preparewithmark.com. Oh, I know. I know. What's the big deal, you say? I can wait till. the... This is why people really... Take responsibility for themselves, their own protection, their own safety, and their own food. It's 800-294-2325, 800-294-2325, or preparewithmark.com, preparewithmark.com. And yes, I have it. No, I'm not part of the militia or anything of the sort. This has nothing to do with that, nothing. It's just a rational thing to do you know, a lot of you folks, you're one out there, you hear that it's going to snow, you get toilet paper, extra milk, extra water mortar, mortar three weeks full. <clears throat> this isn't that. This is a sensible thing where you're thinking if there's a disaster, a natural disaster, what have you, my family and I are going to be able to eat. All right, folks, we're just beginning. I'll be right back. 833-RING-BHN Get 15% off your first order with promo code LEVIN That's Brickhouse BrickHouseLevin.com or call 833-RING-BHN promo code LEVIN He's here
0: He's here
1: So Ronald Reagan would be 107 years old today. Well, before I get to a few other matters, let me talk about that for a moment. In 1974, my brother Doug and I went to Philadelphia. We lived in the suburbs in Elkins Park in Cheltenham Township. Uh, we listened to a speech. ...that had been given by Governor Reagan. 1978, we went back to Philadelphia. We we listened to a speech being given by... ...well, I guess he wasn't governor then... ...Ronald Reagan. Uh, He had formed a political action committee... ...and he was introduced by a gentleman by the name of Paul Laxalt. Paul Laxalt had been the governor of Nevada, a senator from Nevada... And one of Ronald Reagan's closest friends, as they were their governorships for a period of time overlapped. <clears throat> Paul Laxalt was as solid a conservative as there ever was. And in many ways, I consider him a mentor. I'll tell that story one other day. As a matter of fact, hanging above me, behind me, as I do this program is a photo with Senator Laxalt, my father and me, when... I visited the senator for the first time, even though I was a resident and citizen of Pennsylvania. And he took 20 or 30 minutes to talk with me and my father. I'd actually been thinking about moving to Nevada and one day running for office. Well, obviously, my mind changed on that. But anyway, I was a young man. I'm 60 years old. Now you can figure out the math. So 1978. Uh, Check that. 1974 was the first time my brother and I, in person, heard Reagan speak. And there was always this talk that he wanted to be president. You know, in the 1968 Republican Convention, he was a favorite son in California. He lost, of course. And even as a very young man, teenager, 12, 13 years old, I was a conservative. I was a conservative by reading and watching reading National Review, watching Firing Line, uh, reading Milton Friedman, things of that sort. I was involved in athletics and everything else, but I was very, very curious about philosophy and history. And this guy Reagan really, really caught my attention. And in the Northeast, I know... A lot of you may not realize this. In the Northeast, he was, he was an unknown quantity. He was known as an actor. And people didn't give him the respect he deserved, including, you know, as today, the establishment Republican party. The party that I was involved in was filled with people like Mitch McConnell and John Boehner. And when I decided in 1976 to support former Governor Reagan, against sitting President Gerald Ford in the Republican primary in Pennsylvania. Of course, I was mocked too, but I didn't care. And there were a number of us, very young guys, 18, 19, 20, 21, and so forth, young Turks who supported Reagan over Ford. Uh, Reagan decided not to spend much money in Pennsylvania, so we're pretty much on our own. And as it turned out, uh, he didn't campaign much in Pennsylvania either. He campaigned a little bit. <clears throat> so we had to push hard for for him. And uh, I decided, even though I think it was 19, give or take, that I wanted to run as a delegate to the Republican Convention because I wanted to cast my lot with Reagan. Problem was, so did everybody else want to run as a delegate? So we had to get strategic, a number of us, young guys and gals, and uh, some of us had to drop out, backing others, in order to get as many delegates as we possibly could. And to this day, I've never been to a Republican convention. Mostly by choice. So you know the story, 1976, Reagan came very, very close. I believe it was about 102 or 112 delegates short, which means if he had swung 50, 52 or so delegates, 56, he could have won. Most people didn't expect that. He did. He got enormous help uh, from conservatives all over the country. Uh, he tried a last-minute move by selecting Senator Richard Schweiker of Pennsylvania, it was very, very liberal to try and win over the Pennsylvania delegation, but it didn't work. The Mississippi delegation, which had pledged to Reagan, stabbed him in the back. And they didn't stay with Reagan. So there were instances of that. But we all knew that he'd be back. And the old story goes that when he gave his concession speech, when Gerald Ford... His wife were on stage. Betty uh, and uh, Nancy Reagan and, and Ronald Reagan were called from the uh, from the stands to come speak. He spoke, and as the story goes, and it's correct. Everybody knew that the Republicans had nominated the wrong man, and Jimmy Carter would win the presidency. Reagan never stopped strategizing, planning, preparing, and running for president. <clears throat> and of course, you know he won in 1980. And I was involved in both campaigns in a true, wonderful honor. And I left as in-house counsel. I'd only been there about six months at Tandem Computers, right outside of uh, Dallas, Texas. Not Tandem Computers, what I'm thinking, Texas Instruments, Texas Instruments. And um, came to Washington, D.C. and started out at this little agency called the Action Agency. It doesn't exist anymore because we abolished it. And that was our job under a very wonderful fellow by the name of Tom Palkin, who Carl Rove would spend most of his career trying to destroy, as a matter of fact. And I've never forgotten it. But Palkin was a Reaganite through and through, a Vietnam vet. And he headed this little agency, and he asked me to be his, effectively his chief of staff. And this is where I found boxes and boxes and boxes of this odd book that this poverty program, Vista, had been purchasing and shipping out into these poverty areas. It was written by a guy by the name of Saul Linsky. I never heard of Saul Linsky. And the book was white and red on the cover, and these were paperbacks. And there were tens of thousands of them. Rules for Radicals. You see, Action, this so-called poverty agency, had the foster grandparent program, but you have to understand, they all sound good, but under the left, they are bastardized. The Vista program and so forth. Sam Brown, a former new left, radical, anti-war protester, had, had headed Action. A woman by the name of Marge Tabankin had headed Vista. Uh, for the longest time, she might still be the head of uh, Barbara Streisand's political pack. Radicals. Uh, they were they were sending money out to uh, Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda, Midwest Academy-type organizations. A lot of money flowed through the radical organizations in Chicago. It was just a disastrous mess. So we eliminated the agency over time and eliminated its funding. And from there, over the course of years, I would wind up as Chief of Staff to Attorney General Meese having a stint at the White House and so forth. And when I think of Reagan, I think of him so fondly. What he did as President of the United States for eight years, this this little respite from progressivism, which we'd only had two times in that century, the last century, under Calvin Coolidge and under Ronald Reagan. Really the only two modern conservative presidents. And we'll look back on Trump and I hope we'll be able to say the same thing for him. As I've said many times before, I think he's the most conservative president in my lifetime since Reagan. I hope it stays that way. And if it does, what an honor to have talked to him over the years and meet him a few months ago again. But Reagan, so many stories I could tell a very decent man, a very genuine man, and an extremely well-read man. You know, I talk to you from time to time about these philosophers. Marx and Hegel and Rousseau and so forth. He's, he read all of them. Talked to you about the good guys too. Burke, uh, Bastiat. I mean, so many I can't even name. He read them too. He had a personal library in his home. His, his shelves were filled with this type of material. Probably one of the most well-read presidents we've ever had. And yet, they tried to turn him into a dunce, as a B actor, as a dangerous man. Uh, Ted Kennedy colluded again, this time with the Soviets, to try and defeat Reagan in his uh, re-election race, in which he won 49 states. And with a swing of 3,000 votes, he would have won 50 states, including Mondales, Minnesota. We'd never seen election landslides like this. Popular vote, electoral college vote. And he to take Reagan out in the Iran-Contra matter. There was no underlying crime there either. There was no underlying crime there at all. And so we had Lawrence Walsh for over eight years, spending about... $100 million indicting innocent people manufacturing uh, process crimes and Mueller very much like Lawrence Walsh a putative Republican as was Walsh who hates the President of the United States as did Walsh hate Reagan Walsh came out of the rhino wing of the Republican Party much like Mueller has and Mueller is very much liked. he was introduced when he was becoming United States Attorney by Barbara Boxer and uh, Diane Feinstein. <clears throat> but Reagan understood progressivism. He understood progressivism. And when we come back from the break, I want to touch on this again, but in a different way. We've talked about Hegel. I did last week, I believe. And I want to talk to you briefly, so we can put this budget debate and everything else in context that's going on, immigration, about another gentleman. Not so much a philosopher, but a so-called intellectual. And I've talked about him before, but look, people come and go on radio, they're busy, you're busy, you're eating dinner, whatever it is. And saying it once isn't enough. And saying it differently is important. His name was Herbert Crowley, C-R-O-L-Y. He was born in 1869 and he died in 1930. He was one of the leading academic and progressive thinkers of the time. He co-founded the New Republic. He authored many, many books and articles. But one of his most famous books, essential for progressive intellectuals, was called The Promise of American Life in 1909. And one of the men who was deeply influenced by Crowley, who was a radical progressive. He was a socialist. He had an affinity for uh, Hegel, Marx, and so forth. This will be shocking to you. was Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt. He found Crowley to be extremely persuasive. I'll be right back. All right, let's jump in. You folks tell me this stuff interests you. Let's jump in. First of all, progressivism. We're talking about budgets, immigration. You need to know who these people are. Progressivism was imported from Europe, and it would result in a radical break from America's heritage. A radical break from America's heritage. In fact, it is best described as an elitist-driven counter-revolution to the American Revolution, in which the sovereignty of the individual, natural law, natural rights, and the civil society built on a foundation of thousands of years of enlightened thinking and human experience, will be drastically altered and even abandoned for an ideological agenda broadly characterized as historical progress. Progressivism, this is me, is the idea of the inevitability of historical progress and the perfectibility of man in his self-realization through the national community or the collective. While its intellectual and political advocates ...clothe its core in populist terminology. Think about Bernie Sanders. And Despite the existence of democratic institutions and cyclical voting... ...progressivism's emphasis on material egalitarianism and social engineering... ...and its insistence on concentrated centralized administrative rule... ...lead inescapably to varying degrees of autocratic governance. And for progressives, there are no absolute or permanent truths... ...only passing and distant historical events... Thus, even values are said to be relative to time and circumstances. And that's why you get this war on our culture. There is no eternal moral order. That is, that was true and good in 1776 and before is not necessarily true and good today. Consequently, the very purpose of America's founding is debased. Now, Crowley, Herbert Crowley, was among the leading academic and progressive thinkers. He co-founded the magazine, The New Republic, and he authored this book I mentioned, many, but this one in particular, The Promise of American Life. It was an essential book among us fellow intellectuals, jurists, and certain powerful politicians, including Theodore Roosevelt. Crowley argued that to conceive the better American future as a consummation, which will take care of itself, As the necessary result of our customary conditions, institutions, and ideas, persistence in such a consumption is admirably designed to deprive American life of any promise at all. So there he is. He's completely rejecting the American founding, the principles in the Declaration, and the values upon which they're based. He says, the better future which Americans propose to build is nothing if not an idea which must, in certain essential respects, emancipate them from their past. American history contains much matter for pride and congratulation and much matter for regret and humiliation. Americans must be prepared to sacrifice to that traditional vision, even the traditional American ways of realizing it. Such a sacrifice is, I believe, coming to be demanded. And unless it is made, American life will gradually cease to have any specific promise. That is, you must throw off the founders. You must throw off. Our revered documents you must reject our history life begins now right now and the intellectuals and the elites and their ideas are what matter and how we organize around them and organize society around them I'm not done again I don't just do this for an academic purpose we're going to go through some of this and relate it back to the debate that's taking place right now on the budget and immigration I'll be right back
2: Apologetic patriot and unapologetic constitutionalist. You can reach him at 877-381-3811.
1: Remember that New Year's resolution you made to put your IRS problems behind you? Well, it's February, and you're still living in fear of the IRS, right? Today is the day they show up at work, garnish your wages, freeze your bank accounts. Let me encourage you with an actual case from my friends at Optima Tax Relief. Like you, Charles dragged his IRS problems well into the new year before calling Optima Tax Relief. Optima quickly stepped between Charles and the IRS, protected his assets, and resolved his tax problem. Optima knows that behind every tax problem are good people, people with families, homes, savings, and paychecks who need protection which explains how they've resolved over half a billion dollars in tax debt for their clients and they're A-plus rated with the Better Business Bureau. Call Optima Tax Relief right away. Tax time's coming. Their number is 800-499-6300, 800-499-6300. That's 800-499-6300. Back to Herbert Crowley, had so much influence on what took place in this country really over a 100 years ago. And most of you have never been taught about Herbert Crowley or his other colleagues and and like-thinking people who had enormous influence on this country. And you can see they reject its underpinnings. Crowley wrote, The individual American will never obtain a sufficiently complete chance of self-expression until the american nation has earnestly undertaken and measurably achieved the realization of its collective purpose doesn't he sound like hegel somewhat marx but definitely hegel now crowley <coughs> excuse me like many before and since tied historic progress in the modern state to the idea of material egalitarianism again think bernie sanders it's a central tenet of marxism. Crowley wrote it is the econo- listen it is the economic individualism of our existing national system which inflicts the most serious damage on american individuality. An american individual achievement in politics and science and the arts will remain partially impoverished as long as our fellow countrymen neglect or refuse systematically to regulate the distribution of wealth in the national interest. I'm aware, of course, he writes, that the prevailing American conviction is absolutely contradictory of the foregoing assertion. Americans have always associated individual freedom with the unlimited popular enjoyment of all available economic opportunities. Yet it would be far more true to say that the popular enjoyment of practically unrestricted economic opportunities is precisely the condition which makes for individual bondage. So in other words, and I'll get into this another day, we've talked about it about a year or two ago, for the progressive, again, like Hegel, Crowley, all the rest. Individualism isn't individualism. The only way the individual can self-realize and be fulfilled is through the state, through the collective. So they steal this right from Hegel and Marx. The American founding, its principles and institutions, and the fathers themselves, I write, they must therefore be disemboweled. In his book Progressive Democracy, which he wrote in 1914, Crowley was blunt. He wrote, as in the case of every great political edifice, the materials composing the American system are derived from many different sources and are characterized by unequal values both as to endurance and as to latent possibilities. The appearance of definiteness and finality, which it derives from its embodiment in specific constitutional documents and other authoritative words is to a large extent illusory. So he blows out the Constitution. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Sotomayor, Breyer, on the political side, the Schumers and so forth, this is their thinking. This is their thinking. They are radical progressives. Both historically and theoretically, he wrote, the American system is based upon an affirmation of popular political authority. When the colonists proclaimed their independence of the British crown and, and the parliament, the repudiated sovereign had to be replaced with a capable substitute, and this substitute could consist under the circumstances only of the supposed makers of the revolution the American people as a whole. After the Declaration of Independence, the people, whoever they were and however their power was to be organized and expressed, became the only source of righteous political authority in the emancipated nation. Crowley wrote, emphatic, however, as was this assertion of its direct control over its own political institutions by the primitive American democracy. Its willingness to restrict its own effective political power was no less definite and insistent. You see, they hate checks and balances. They hate divided government. They hate the fact of three branches of government. Because remember, they're progressives. They want a centralized power. It did not show the slightest disposition to translate the supposedly effective popular control over the institutes of government into active popular control over governmental behavior. The democracy abdicated the continuing active exercise of effective power in the very act of affirming the reality of its own ultimate legal authority. So what he's saying there is, they build a system that protects the system. That is the system they built. And of course, this is the thinking of radicals, revolutionaries. And I don't mean that in the positive sense. Because just like Venezuela, or Cuba, or China, or any of these other phony, repressive, uh, genocidal regimes, they call themselves People's Republic. They call themselves Democracies. And of course uh, Hamas has done the same thing in the Gaza Strip. They'll have an election or two or three or a hell of a many. But they don't care about democracy. So they use the people and populism in order to promote fascism or communism. The irony is that the kind of centralized administrative state that Crowley advocated, and which surrounds us today, and is managed by a relative handful of architects, is at all but immune from the popular will and completely impervious to direct popular sovereignty, which is my point in the book. It's what I just wrote. You can go through the... and vote over and over and over all you want. Your ability to affect what's going on at HUD with the Department of Agriculture is passing at best and non-existent in most cases. That's why they've been built that way by the progressives, these massive ivory tower institutions that cannot be penetrated by the vote while they keep talking about the vote. But Crowley was not actually an advocate of popular sovereignty so much as he was an opponent of genuine individualism and constitutional republicanism, the latter two being obstacles to a centralized state in which it is claimed that governing authority exists at the behest of the people and for the good of the people. Let us remember, for the progressives, historical progress is said to be a process of never-ending cultural and societal adjustments, intended to address the unique circumstances of today, the ultimate goal of which is economic egalitarianism and the material liberation of the so-called masses. More on Crowley. I'm getting to a point. Another condition, he wrote, must also be satisfied before an expert administration, which is what they talk about all the time, the science of political science, the science of social science, the science of behavioral sciences. Of course, they're not sciences at all. Another condition also must be satisfied before an expert administration can expect to obtain popular confidence, its authority will depend, as we have seen, on its ability to apply scientific knowledge, there you go, to the realization of social purposes. And if a social science is unattainable or does not command popular respect, popular opinion will be reluctant to grant to the administration its necessary independent authority. Now, in what way can a body of so-called knowledge be made to command popular respect? In the long run, doubtless, by increasing demonstration that social knowledge is the fruit of a binding and formative social ideal, and that it is really serviceable for the accomplishment of a social program. That is it such a demonstration, is such a demonstration sufficient? Is there not another and equally necessary method of increasing popular confidence in the expert? The method of giving a much larger number of people the chance of acquiring a better intellectual training? Is it fair to ask millions of Democrats, that's lowercase d, that is you, to have a profound respect for scientific accomplishments. Again, we're not talking about the real sciences here. Whose possession is denied to them by prevailing social and educational organization. It can hardly be claimed that the greater proportion of the millions who are insufficiently educated are not just as capable of being better educated as the thousands to whom science comes to have a real meaning. And of course, what do they do? They monopolize the educational system which, of course, is less about education and more about indoctrination. Indoctrination about what? Progressivism. Indoctrination about what? Promoting centralized, ubiquitous government. Indoctrination about what? Hating American history, as Crowley did. Rejecting it. And he wasn't alone. He wasn't alone in the least. Crowley expressed the view held by all progressives, Democrat and Republican, and yes, When we talk about the Republican establishment, I call it progressivism light, or statism light, but that's what it is. In his era and since, industrial America and therefore capitalism create an economic and social class system, different in specifics but not necessarily in kind, to that described by Karl Marx. They hate capitalism. Writing in the New Republic in 1920, he said, The unanswerable indictment against capitalism as an American institution is not that enterprising businessmen seized and exploited the opportunities and power which society placed at their disposal. It was unnatural and even necessary that they should organize production and distribution on a basis more profitable to themselves than to society. The offense against the American national welfare with which they are indictable is of a different kind. It is their blindness to the social penalties of their methods of hiring, firing and playing labor and the refusal to make the technical and social education of their employees a charge upon business or upon the businessman's state. So in this regard, you see Crowley expressed the view held by all progressives, Democrat and Republican, that capitalism is the enemy. This is why I reject Nationalism, populism, populism, nationalism, and so forth and so on. They don't realize it, but they borrow a lot of the arguments, class warfare, and communal objectives and so forth, and uh, overarching centralized governmental power from the progressives. Now, how do you argue against this? Or how do I argue against it? It's very simple, a little field trip to a supermarket a little field trip to a major supermarket where you walk down the aisles and you see all kinds of food from all over the world, all over the country, fresh and frozen, canned and not canned, all kinds of wrappers, processed and organic. Where did this come from? How is this possible? Wines from California, wines from Virginia, Tomatoes from New Jersey. Peaches from Georgia. How does this happen? How does this happen? Twenty different kinds of butter or margarine. Fifty different kinds of yogurt. Fifty different kinds of soda. Ten different kinds of milk. Eggs. Small eggs, medium eggs. Large eggs, giant eggs. Extra giant eggs, extra large eggs. Brown eggs, white eggs. What? All kinds of flour. In fact, all kinds of flowers from all over the world. How is this possible? You can get hot food, cold food. You can get bagels, you can get white bread. You can get multigrain bread, you can get Italian bread. What? That's my answer to Mr. Crowley and all the Marxists out there. We, the American people, live like no other people have ever lived before us. Kings and queens. Kings and queens of the past could not imagine how you and I live today. And I'm talking about the poorest American. The poorest American. I'll be right back.
0: Mark Levin.
1: In a constitutional republic that embraces capitalism, Anyone can become anything. There's no guarantee. That's for sure. You can fail. You can become a nothing. But this is for sure, and I do guarantee it. In a centralized socialist regime, the closer you get to nirvana, the closer you get to the perfect state, the closer and more you are dehumanized, and you can't accomplish anything. I would suggest that you think about the supermarket shelves in America and the supermarket shelves in Venezuela, the hospitals in America and the hospitals in Cuba. I would even suggest that you breathe the air in L.A., New York, and Chicago, versus breathing the air in Beijing and Shanghai. There's quite a difference, you know. And yet we have a political party that has been devoured by the progressive movement, this importation of, of European Hegelism slash Marxism. I've told you many times, progressivism is the bastard child of Marxism. And they have as their constant purpose the destruction. They call it the transformation of America. The rejection of our principles. Look around you. You could lose everything. If they win, you lose everything. You already lost your health care system. Trust me when I tell you, they're not done. They've only just begun. They don't even know when they're done. If you ask them for their constitution, there isn't one. If you ask them for their blueprint, they don't have one. It's just constant, constant, constant transformation until we reach the perfect society. The problem with reaching the perfect society is... Regimes have tried that before, and you know the consequences. Valentine's Day is around the corner. Time to look your absolute best. Introducing the brand new Genesis Eyelid Lift for Droopy Eyelids. Here's Mary from Fort Collins, Colorado. I don't believe everything I hear, she said, so I tried this eye lift on my right eye. And the very next day at work, everybody said my right eye looked better. I couldn't believe it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, now it's your turn, because today... This breakthrough eyelid treatment is yours absolutely free when you order Genesel for bags and puffiness. And yes, it works for men and women. Plus, you'll also get the Genocell immediate effects for results in 12 hours. Go to Genesel.com or call 800-SKIN-604, 800-SKIN-604. But there's more. Order in the next 20 minutes and get the Genesel Collagen Builder and Deep Firming Serum, two bestsellers. Also free for Valentine's Day. That's four luxury gifts. A complete beauty system for the price of one. Don't delay. Order now. So, go to Genesel.com or call 800-SKIN-604-800-SKIN-604. Now, you've heard me talk about this for years now. Do yourself a favor. Take the plunge. Just try it. 800-SKIN-604, get the four luxury gifts, a complete beauty system for the price of one. Take advantage of it now. Valentine's is the perfect time. Valentine's is almost here. 800-SKIN-604, that's 800-SKIN-604. Okay, what does all this have to do with anything? Well, first of all, you're smart. You're the smartest audience out there, so you know. But we'll tie it together with what's going on now with the President and Congress. I'll be right back. we're going to shut the government down. They're thinking of it. The Democrats apparently won't give an inch on immigration. The uh, fact is that neither party has discussed the debt. Have you heard either party discuss the debt? What are they going to do about the debt? Is there a plan to deal with the debt? Is that not an issue? When most politicians in the Republican Party and all politicians of the Democrat Party don't discuss the debt, then you know the progressives have won. When they won't discuss cutting programs that are 50, 60, 70, 80 years old and are not even related to the subsistence of anybody, you know the progressives have won. When not a single department or agency is eliminated, you know the progressives have won. And you know they won because we're not even allowed to talk about it. A complete paradigm shift. And we don't even realize it. They act as if we cannot survive without this department or that agency. I mean, yet every time they shut down the government, we survive just fine. Do they act that way when some private sector entity is eliminated because of taxes or regulations? No, never. Do they care? Not in the least. And it's not even the entire federal government (laughs) they care about. Excuse me. They don't care about the military. In fact, they would like to drain the funds away from the military as they've drained the funds out of the Social Security trust funds, as they've drained the funds out of the Medicare trust funds to fund today's absolute necessities, as, as they essentially argue. Because yesterday doesn't matter, remember? Only today matters. I mean, when you get right down to it, when you get to the number, but progressivism is like being a drunk. Nothing matters before. I need a drink today. And so there is... Now there's holy grail that you can't shut down the government. And I say this tongue-in-cheek, yet the government is shut down all the time. It's currently, what, 8.08, 8.09 p.m. Eastern Time. Government's effectively shut down. You know, Apart from certain elements of, uh, of the intelligence agencies and law enforcement at the federal level and, of course, the military, the parts of the federal government that the progressives care about, those that kick you around, push you around, take your wealth, redistribute it to somebody else, tell you what to wear, not what to wear, what's between your legs, where to go to the bathroom, what gym to use, and on and on and on, that part of the government shut down several hours ago. If it snows around Washington, it shuts down. If it's icy around Washington, it shuts down. If it's Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, it shuts down. can never have enough federal holidays, it shuts down. And yet we're told, how the hell are we going to live without it? The truth is the vast majority of us can live without much of the government. Not all the government. I'm not an anarchist. I'm a constitutionalist. For the most of us, it wouldn't affect our lives at all. But since the progressives control the propaganda wing of society, the media, since the progressives control the enforcement wing of our society, the government effectively, most of the courts, the bureaucracy, they control what goes on in most of our classrooms across the country, what's shown in our theaters, Broadway, on and on and on. Uh, they create a scenario where uh, it's apocalypse. The end is near if the government shuts down. Yet the government has shut down and we're perfectly fine to the extent it shuts down at all. And so now we have this uh, immigration debate again. The president has shown his hand. The president's offered 1.8 million people into citizenship. I think that is a disaster. <clears throat> and yet many of the pom-pomers out there and the They think it's brilliant politics, you see, because now he's really exposed the Democrats for what they are. Uh, Honestly, we didn't need to expose the Democrats for what they are. They've already been exposed. They've already been exposed. Doesn't seem to matter. And so we get back to what Crowley wrote. You have a government this big. (coughs) Actually, you have a government this big. It can't be really constitutional in every sense of the word. I know we play along. I know I have friends, some of my friends at the Federalist Society, some friends on the federal courts, some friends who are law professors and so forth and so on. And They'll continue to make the case that this is a constitutional republic. I make the case that in so many respects it is not anymore. I mean, the administrative state is the fourth branch of government. Where is that in the Constitution? I'm not saying there shouldn't be some administrative activities in the federal government, of course. But that's not what we're talking about, is it? We have massive administrative agencies and departments that kick out almost a million regulations a year. I should say a million pages of regulations a year. Eight hundred, nine hundred thousand, 900,000, give or take. I've written about it before. Not one vote's been taken by Congress. Not one vote's been taken by the American people. That's not a constitutional republic. Anyway, I wanted to point this out, that this debate going on now about the budget. Will the government be open? Will the government close? And so, It's not even the debate we should be having. The debate we should be having is... How much more spending is there going to be? How much more debt is there going to be? And yet we're not even allowed to have this debate. Mitch McConnell won't have this debate. He considers us lunatics. You know, we talked about the fact that it's Reagan's 107th birthday, if he were living today. Mitch McConnell is a full-grown adult. Never supported Ronald Reagan in any primary battle. Never. He supported Gerald Ford, for whom he worked at the Justice Department as a young man, in 1980. He did not support Ronald Reagan in the Republican primaries. And yet there he is, the Republican leader of the uh, of the United States Senate. Well, Mark, neither did Donald Trump, neither did Donald Trump. Yet, but Donald Trump doesn't pretend to have a past like that. Donald Trump doesn't pretend. And interestingly enough, Donald Trump is more conservative than Mitch McConnell ever has been. He's more conservative today. And much of the hate for Donald Trump comes out of the establishment, the never-Trumpers, who pretend to be more conservative than Trump. And when you read what they write, well, maybe you consider this, and six of that, and half a dozen of that, and if this happens, then this will happen. They're not terribly conservative. All right, we'll be right back. They used to be border hawks, they used to oppose amnesty, and they did that, why? Because the AFL-CIO, the Teamsters and so forth, insisted that they be border hawks, because there was a time when the uh, private sector unions believed that their membership uh, was being subjected to uh, illegal wages that were undercutting union contracts. But today, the private sector unions, for the most part, if not all of them, certainly most of them, support illegal immigration and massive immigration because the new leadership of these unions have basically sold out their members uh, in hopes of getting other members, just like the progressives generally who seek to replace the voter with new voters, as I've been talking about now for some time. Now they want to replace their membership with new members who will be more... You know, willing to vote for them as as their leaders and so forth. But here's a montage of their hypocrisy. It doesn't even go back that far. In some cases 20 years, in some cases 8 years and so forth. Schumer, Feinstein, Sanders, Tim Kaine, John Tester, Joe Donnelly, Claire McCaskill, Joe Manchin, and Bill Clinton. Hat tip, free beacon, cut, three go. Every year, 2 million people cross the borders here illegally. That is something we cannot have any longer. And
2: provide a chance for people currently here illegally to get right with the law and earn legal status. Illegal immigration is wrong, plain and simple. Illegal aliens should not be treated the same as people who entered the U.S. legally. Like some form of path to citizenship, whether it's a DREAM Act or allowing those who cross the border illegally to use existing
3: means. The day when America could be the welfare system... Mexico is gone. We simply can't afford it. The people who should be here
4: are those who come legally at this time. We will do everything within our power to see that the DACA program continues, that these children.
3: I think we should enforce our borders. 40% of the babies
4: born on Medicaid in California today are born of illegal immigrants. Creates a very real problem for the state.
0: And we're very lucky to have them here in the United States. I believe we have very serious immigration problems uh, in this country. Our border is very porous. The last thing we need is to bring over a period of years millions of people into this country who are prepared for lower wages for American workers. I believe that we have got to move toward
3: a path toward citizenship. I'm deeply opposed to illegal immigration. Make sure that we do not provide services to folks in this state who are not here legally. Over a period of years, they can earn the right to citizenship. Um, I want to be clear.
2: We need to have, there needs to be not be any amnesty. These folks need to get in line. I'm
0: going to look at it from even another way. Look, there's a bipartisan agreement to get DACA done. I think we ought to get DACA done. It should have been done.
2: We must not provide amnesty for those who have broken our laws. Stronger, safer borders where our DACA kids have a chance to uh, remain in the United States.
3: I voted against comprehensive immigration reform.
1: Are you comfortable with the president uh, taking unilateral action?
3: You know, I'm not crazy about it. If we actually get to the point that we're deporting someone who has never known any other country who's been willing to serve in our military, then we this is truly, I think, the lowest that we could possibly go. I voted for it because the most important thing is secured the borders. We put more effort to secure the borders than ever before in any piece of legislation. I've ever seen or voted on. I'm for we'll need to build more wall. We need to do whatever we can to secure the board, the borders. In the budget I will present to you, we will try to do more to speed the deportation of illegal aliens who are arrested for crimes, to better identify illegal aliens in the workplace as recommended by the commission headed by former Congresswoman Barbara Jordan.
1: Now, folks, this could go on all night with Harry Reid and on and on and on. But you see, you and I, we haven't changed our positions. These people have changed their positions because they're chameleons. Because they don't put country first. They put party first. And they want to change the voter. They want to change the voter. They can't win majority status, they believe, largely correct, unless they change the voting population. And that's exactly what they're doing. So rather than resist it, they and their union supporters and all the rest have decided to change the union membership, to change the voters. And that's what this battle's over, Democrat power. So fund the military or support the Democrats with more and more voters, changing the voters. Look, I call them as I see them, and that's what I see. And Donald Trump's at the White House today. You know, we just had this this Colts football player, this wonderful player, killed. As was another individual in their car. They got out of the car on the side of the road. There was a problem with the road or they got lost or something. And an illegal alien, twice deported, with a DUI record, back in the country, runs over them. Kills them then I wonder how many football players next season are going to take a knee against illegal immigration. How many? That's not a result of quote-unquote white privilege. That's not a result of uh, quote-unquote wealth dislocation or whatever damn phrases everybody uses these days. This is common sense. President Trump at the White House today on the border. Cut four, go. MS-13 recruits through our broken immigration
2: system, violating our borders, and it just comes right through. Whenever they want to come through, they come through. It's much tougher now since we've been there, but we need much better border mechanisms and much better border security. And and
1: let's stop for a moment. There are communities in this country that are being ravaged by MS-13. Believe it or not, Long Island, New York, this is a huge problem. Northern Virginia, Fairfax and Loudoun County, Virginia, Los Angeles, so many areas, so many communities. And this isn't even a typical gang. These are gangs that that brutalize their victims for no reason. Kill in the most heinous way, cutting out somebody's heart while they're alive, decapitating people, almost like ISIS techniques. Except they've been using these techniques since before ISIS and they're mostly out of El Salvador and we don't we can't necessarily stop them it's not as if they self-identify hi I'm with MS-13 and some of them are the age of may I say dreamers ooh look at the dreamer excuse me that's an MS-13 ooh sorry go ahead
2: Well, I'm going to get the wall we don't have the wall, we're never going to solve this problem. And I've gone to the top people. Many of these people are at the table right now, including this group. And without the wall, it's not going to work. During my State of the Union, I called on Congress to close the immigration loopholes that have allowed this deadly gang to break so easily into our country.
1: But the Democrats say unless we get as many aliens to become citizens and our voters, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. The same party that undermines local law enforcement, the same party that pretends to defend the FBI when it's defending the rogue senior elements of the FBI and undermining the FBI, the same Democrat Party that is eviscerating the United States military, that Democrat Party. And then the President made a statement today, which was right on, real leadership. Hat tip, right scoop, cut five, go
2: you know we can't do a job these incredible professionals at the table cannot do their job unless we change really the legislation and uh, we're going to get it done frankly i'll go a step further if we don't change the legislation if we don't get rid of these loopholes where killers are allowed to come into our country and continue to kill gang members, and we're just talking about MS-13, there are many gang members that we don't even mention. If we don't change it, let's have a shutdown. We'll do a shutdown. And it's worth it for our country. I'd love to see a shutdown if we don't get this stuff taken
1: care of. Now that is music to my ears. Not because I'm interested in being provocative or creating dislocation for federal workers or anything like that. Serious Republican leaders. In fact, serious Republican statesmen understand that the only way that you can advance something like this or Reagan in his case Pershing-2s and MX missiles and so forth the only way you can advance something like this is to draw the red line and quote-unquote shut down the government we all know the government never shuts down we're talking about less than 20% of the government but that's fine the point is it's the only way that this president will get some of his priorities passed through this progressive-led United States Senate and House of Representatives. We'll be right back.
0: The Voice of Sanity in an Insane World The Mark Levin Show. Call him now at 877-381-3811. You know, in
1: 1925, an ounce of gold was worth $20, and it would buy two suits and a shirt. Well, times have changed since then, haven't they? We no longer carry a gold coin in our pocket as money. The government made us exchange that a long time ago for a printed $20 bill. PM Capital is in the wealth preservation business. Keeping your buying power is their goal. Investors know that it's not what you have, it's what you keep today. Now, If you want to buy two shirts, uh, two suits and a shirt today, and use the $20 bill that you receive, say, for your gold coin, it might buy a pair of socks, actually. But if I had that one ounce of gold, that one ounce gold coin, it would still buy two suits and a shirt. That's called preserving your buying power. Don't you want to keep what you have? Look at what's going on in the stock market, up and down and up and down. I wouldn't panic, but these are lurches, and this is why you diversify, so you don't panic. Learn more by claiming your free PM Capital Investor Guide. For a limited time, you'll receive $500 in free gold and silver on qualifying purchases. All you have to do is call, and I'm going to keep it very simple. Dial pound 250, pound 250, and say the keyword Mark Levin. That's it. That's pound 250, keyword Mark Levin. Dial pound 250, say Mark Levin. And their specialists are standing by. They're wonderful people, just like you, who are prepared to fill you in, tell you what they do, tell you how you can acquire different fractional sizes, different amounts, and so forth and so on, and if you can qualify for the $500 in free gold or silver uh, for a limited time, by the way. So that's pound 250. Keyword, Mark Levin. This is a great outfit, PM Capital. I know one of their uh, principals very, very well, Scott Carter. And uh, and I'm very, very pleased to have them as a new sponsor as I switched over to them because I'm so impressed with who they are and what they do. Let's take a call. Tom Cornelia, Georgia, the great W-Y-A-Y. Go. Hey,
4: Mark. I just, first of all, wanted – I just can't think of – where we would be in as a country without your information, your your knowledge, your sharing, your passion, and and giving us the history tonight that you've done um, going way back to when all this stuff started. And we have to appreciate that and and then um, you know, as far as progressivism, I would like to just define it very simply as saying it is a bunch of elitist control freaks who just do things. Just to show that they can.
1: Um, that's, that's not a bad definition, actually. Yeah. And and they have. And, no- and by the way, just so you know, Tom, what they really are—and I use their terminology so it doesn't get too confusing—but I wrote about an American. They're statists. That's what they are. Yeah. Aristotle and- used the word status. I reintroduced it in Liberty and Tyranny so many years ago. They're statists. They're not about progress. They call themselves progressives. I kind of have to use that nomenclature when I'm writing about progressives, but like I said in Liberty and Tyranny, what, a decade or so ago? That's what they are. They're about the state, always the state, government, 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 never really about true individualism.
4: And do you recall a woman that worked in the Reagan administration since you were there uh, who wrote the book The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America? Do you know that lady who was in the
1: I I do not recall, no, but there were 3,300 of us, so, you know it gets a little tough. Hey Tom, thanks for your excellent call. I really appreciate it. Let's keep bouncing around. Jeff. Naku Where are you in Wisconsin?
4: Nakusa.
1: Nakusa. All right, my friend. Indi- it's an old Indian
4: name meaning yellow running water. Really? Yes, sir.
1: All right. Well, you know what we call that here? <laughs> Urinating. Anyway, go ahead.
4: Um, I was telling Mr. Call Screener that I believe the Democrats are scared of a government shutdown for the simple reason that some of their people might realize they don't need the government. You kind of touched on it and breezed past it, but I think you hit on it. That's really what they're scared of. That's why Chuck Schumer backed down so quickly. They can't afford to have their constituents find out they don't need
1: them. Let me ask you this, Jeff. When you hear Schumer say that we're as close as we've ever been to a two-year budget deal, he and McConnell. Doesn't that kind of make you nervous? Like, what's the deal? Don't we get to get, you know, since it's our country, since it's our money, since this debt has been placed on our children and our grandchildren, why don't you give us a little insight on exactly what you and McConnell are talking about?
4: It does scare me. The only guy I kind of trust right now is Trump, which is funny because I didn't trust him in the during the election, but now I trust him more than I trust McConnell.
1: I think that's right. No question about it. All right, Jeff, good call. We appreciate it. Lee, Las Vegas, Nevada, the great KDWN, go.
4: Great one. Thanks for taking my call. I'll be brief. Uh, I just want to thank you for playing that piece about the Democratic Party and about how hypocritical and ludicrous and out of touch with the United States they are. And they're all Alinskyites, totally. And uh, they... All they want to do is get as many votes as they can, legally or illegally. Yep, That's and, true. and they're just so out of touch with America. And I thank you for being and, on the radio. Let me just it.
1: say this. First of all, I want to thank you, Lee. The sick irony of this is, as I say, they will use the vote. They will change the voter, use the vote to deny the importance of the vote. It's almost becoming, uh, certainly uh, in, the, in the near future, sort of a routine where you go and vote and yet 90% of what the government does is totally out of your control.
4: And, and Mark, I want to thank you. I'm calling from Las Vegas. I just want to commend you and thank you for the funds you raised for the October 1st shooting we had here. You're a gentleman and uh, your patriotism is uh,
1: uh, much, very much, 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 much. Well, thank It's you. just wonderful, Mark. You're, thank you, Lee. You're you terrific. take your Individual. Thank. Well, God bless you. I didn't raise it. You folks did. I think we pushed it from seven hundred and some thousand dollars up to about five million dollars, and uh, that's thanks to you. And they still haven't gotten to the bottom of that out there in Las Vegas, have they? No. Brian, Baltimore City, Michigan, on the Mark Levin app. Is that correct? Uh, New Baltimore, Michigan new baltimore michigan what happened to the old one go ahead
3: (laughs) hey mark how you doing hey listen i think we all agree that this memo that Schiff sent up to the white house is a political gimmick that is purposely loaded up with classified information so it has to be redacted so he can run to the cameras and cry foul my question is this why don't the republicans call their bluff and just release the document as is that way they can go back and say Okay, Democrats, you guys want to release classified information? Game on. You know all those FISA applications, those sworn affidavits that are loaded up with false statements? Here, everybody gets to see them. You know all these underlying intelligence documents that shows the real collusion between the Russians and the Hillary campaign and the DNC and the Obama operatives? Here, everybody gets to see them. Well, the Why problem
1: we never... is they can't just release them because the stipulation is that it has to be reviewed by the executive branch. Uh, because, of the, you know, we have separation of powers and the documents belong to the executive branch. So before they're going to release them, the executive branch has to uh, say, OK, or ultimately the president.
3: It just seems like there's got to be a better way than falling into this trap that they've sent up to the White House. All
1: mm-hmm. All right, my friend. I agree. It's problematic. It's problematic when you're dealing with truly evil people. And Adam Shifty Shiftless is a truly evil person. Matt, Los Angeles, California, the great 870 a.m., the answer. Go. Good afternoon,
3: Mark. Hey, so my wife is a Canadian citizen. We live here in Los Angeles, and uh, we did the uh, legal uh, way of immigration, and we had to jump through a lot of hoops, spend thousands of dollars to lawyers and to the feds and to the state. Uh, And I think when we finally got everything handled, my my lawyer kind of half-jokingly said, you know, if you would have been engaged to uh, an Iraqi woman or somebody from Syria, it would have been much easier to get them here on asylum. I guess my question to you is there's many people in politics that are very well educated. What part of illegal, the word in and of itself, do they not understand? If I run a bank, that is illegal. I'm probably going to go to prison. I just don't understand what the big hang-up is. I mean, I guess I do they want votes.
1: First of all, you're not even allowed it's gotten so bizarre and absurd that you're not even allowed to use the word illegal. They the the response by the leftists. No person can be illegal. Well, of course they can. We have prisons filled with illegal people, quote unquote. That is people who've committed crimes, American citizens who've committed crimes. And what you're saying is quite right. Which is, uh, why do we accept this crime? Why do we have something called sanctuary cities? They're not sanctuaries. Uh, they are nullifiers. They are they are they are confederacies uh, uh, unto themselves. So they win the language war which is something that I keep trying to fight. But uh, that's the best answer I can give you. Thank you for your call, my friend. Let's continue. Donnie, Alexandria, Virginia, the great WMAL. Go. (coughs) Donnie. I guess Donnie fell off. Donnie's been waiting forever. I feel bad for Donnie. All right, goodbye, Donnie. Now, here is Trump trying to fight the left when it comes to the budget when it comes to the wall. And then there's somebody by the name of Tim Waltz, Democrat, Wisconsin. They're coming out of the woods, all these backbenchers. Uh, Here's what he had to say about uh, Trump wanting to shut down. Absolute... Shut down the government. Cut six. Go.
0: He's saying he would, his words, I would love another shutdown if essentially Democrats don't meet his immigration demands. I would love another shutdown.
2: Well, no one else would. Uh, This hurts people.
1: No, actually, it hurts very few people, and some of us would, because unfortunately that's the only way to have true progress with you progressives. And I lived through many government shutdowns when Ronald Reagan was president. Again, his 107th birthday today if he were alive. And that's how many good things got done in the Reagan administration, or at least some crucial things got done in the Reagan administration, including defense spending, strategic missiles, and the defeat of the Soviet Union. If the government had not been shut down, and again, this is an odd pejorative, since in fact the government really isn't shut down, uh, but if he had not taken those positions, so much of what he did accomplish would not have occurred. It just wouldn't have occurred. Go
2: ahead. This is uh, an absolute failure of leadership. Uh, I understand this that you don't get everything you want. I understand you compromise to get things that make a difference. How
1: do you it- compromise with the modern Democrat Party? Did he not offer 1.8 million people citizenship? That's not even a compromise. That's a surrender. Did he not? Go ahead. I
2: think again, the president's tendency to lean towards totalitarianism. Uh,
1: is- yeah, shut up, you idiot. A president's lead toward totalitarianism. Yes, a president's tendency toward That would be the great late Congressman Tim Waltz. Have you ever heard him before, other than those who actually have the huge disadvantage of living in his district? I'll be right back. Much love in. education these days is insane. Students storm faculty offices. They riot when conservative speakers visit, like our buddy Ben Shapiro. Grievance lists, safe spaces, identity politics have turned higher education into something lower. But not everywhere. There is a place where students can debate ideas openly and honestly, Where they pursue truth together with their professors in a respectful manner. Where the students and faculty have integrity. And that's Hillsdale College. Every student at Hillsdale lives by an honor code. It's not a list of do's and don'ts, but a simple pledge, and here it is. A Hillsdale College student is honorable in conduct, honest in word and deed, dutiful in study and service, and respectful of the rights of others. Through education, the student rises to self-government. That's it. Every freshman commits to follow that code, and throughout their Hillsdale education, their character is built to be true, beautiful, and good. Hillsdale graduates serve our country's teachers and doctors, stay-at-home moms, lawyers, journalists, and more. The excellent education they receive, coupled with that honor code, produces successful, excellent human beings. Learn more about this amazing place called Hillsdale College. Go to levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale dot com. All right. Let us continue on. Shall we? Yes, we can. Uh, Doug Arlington, Texas, the great WBAP. Go.
0: Hi, Mark. This is Doug. Uh, Yeah, shift memo conundrum. I I think if Donald Trump were to send it back to the FBI and the NSA, have them suggest the redactions. If there are any, you go in front of the public and say, look what the Democrats are trying to do. They're trying to hurt the uh, country's security. There are no redactions. He still wins by going out in front of the public and uh, showing that he doesn't have to redact their memo.
1: Well, let me ask you this. Let's say there is classified information there of some kind. Do you think they should redact it or just release it?
0: No, it should be redacted. Why, why jeopardize our country's security for a memo?
1: And yet, if it's classified, and sometimes things are classified that won't jeopardize our security because sometimes they overclassify it. You'd have a different view of that, I suppose.
0: Uh, probably, if if that were the case. That's a judgment call that has to be made at a much higher level than I.
1: The president, right? Yes, correct. What do you think about how to shift pulling one like this, according to uh, Fox? They've been reporting this all day.
0: Uh, I wouldn't expect anything different, to be honest. We have such a contentious society any, uh, okay. anymore that uh, I expect exactly this kind of thing. Mm-hmm.
1: And from him in particular. Let me ask you one more thing before you go. Why do you think he gets so much attention from the media? Uh, Could it be they, that they agree with him?
0: Uh, because I believe the media agrees with him. And because uh, because they agree with him, they want to have a, a, a sounding board.
1: All right, sir. Thank you for your call. And there is this little piece. The dossier author Christopher Steele wrote another anti-Trump memo was fed information by Clinton-connected contact in the Obama State Department. gets worse and worse and worse. And how do the Democrats in Congress, how do they live with themselves? They know exactly what's going on here. Clinton Associates fed information to Trump dossier author Christopher Steele. And this comes from a memo that was written by Grassley and Graham. Hardly two right-wingers. And Fox reports Clinton's associates were feeding allegations to former British spy Christopher Steele at the same time he was compiling the controversial anti-Trump dossier paid for by the Democrat National Committee and the Hillary Clinton campaign, according to an unclassified memo from senior Senate Republicans who recently made a criminal referral. The lawmakers are now asking the FBI for an emergency review of their criminal referral so it can be made public with limited redactions. Right now, most of the pages are are blacked out, although not all. The memo from Grassley and Graham, which is now public for the first time, or aspects of it are, provides new insight into Steele's circle of contacts during that time. Heavily redacted, the memo states Steele said he received information that came from, quote, a foreign subsource who was in touch with, redacted, a contact of, redacted, a friend of the Clintons who passed it to, redacted. So there are multiple foreign sources now that provided information to the Clinton campaign to use against Donald Trump. And there's the irony. And Robert Mueller could care less. He's busy chasing the wrong guy on the anthrax case. Very, very bad judgment, this guy. Troubling enough that the Clinton campaign funded Mr. Steele's work, but that these Clinton associates were contemporaneously feeding Mr. Steele allegations. Raises additional concerns about his credibility, the Senators wrote to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Ladies and gentlemen, if there were ever a case that requires a special counsel, because it involves the senior levels of the FBI and their past and current contact, uh, conduct, certain individuals in the Department of Justice, how come, and I'll say it, Attorney General Jeff Sessions won't appoint a special counsel in this case? Ladies and gentlemen, we salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel. Thank you for being with us. Have a good evening, and I'll see you tomorrow.